0: Jesus Christ set aside His Godhead. Today is a great day to dig into Galatians. I hope you've got your Bibles. I hope you've got your pens. I love people who come in here like that. Some of you people are saying, I've been studying Galatians for 80 years. I don't need no stinking Bible and pens. Good for you. I'll put the scriptures up here just in case. But you follow along, people joining us on the internet, it's an honor to have you as well. Today, I've entitled the lesson, Mr. Analogy, also known as Paul. Analogies are incredible things, and they work phenomenally in our brain. So here is your trivia question, (laughs) not the one I sent by email and forgot the answer to. Here is your trivia question. class today to start out. Ready? Boom. Louis Pasteur. He's the one who basically is credited for the smallpox vaccination. He was the father of vaccines. Okay. Johannes Kepler. He's the one who figured out the elliptical orbits of the planets around the sun And the third one is um, Ilya uh, Mechnikov. Ilya Mechnikov is the one who figured out that white blood cells basically have within them the means to gobble up um, foreign invaders in the body. All right? Three very, very important discoveries. Here's your question. What did the discoveries of these three have in common? And the answer is, they all use the power of analogy to help them find their core discoveries. To help them, I left the word find out, but it should be there. To help them find their core discoveries. All of them credit analogies. Let me just give you one example. Johannes Kepler was a very devout man, and he was trying to figure out why the planets that are going around the sun don't seem to go around the sun in a perfect circle. They go around the sun in an elliptical circle. And he was using as an analogy the Trinity. And he was thinking through the Trinity in terms of the universe. And he thought about the sun being God the Father. And he thought the closer things get to the sun, the faster and the more invigorated with life they should be. Hence the planets that are closer to the sun seem to go faster in the sky than the ones that are further from the sun. And from this analogy, this uh, uh, illustration in his brain comes his discovery. Analogies are wonderful. Analogies and metaphors help us make sense of things. We can better understand ideas if we associate them with something we already understand. Does that make sense? I could give you an analogy but that would seem rather pathetic. So instead I'll just say this. Paul was a master at using metaphor and analogies. Now some of you are saying that's a different picture of Paul. Yes it is. This is from a guy who played Paul in a movie and uh, uh, I kind of like this picture. I like that Beatiness of his eyes. I like that, man. You don't, you don't, I mean, that guy could probably be nice on the right day, <laughs> but he could probably also be stern for the gospel. So, anyway, here's the way I'd like to break apart class today. If you're following with me, the first thing we're going to do are look at some of Paul's analogies. Then we're going to take a time out and we're going to talk theology. And then we're going to go back. And look at some more analogies if time allows us to. Because that's kind of the way Paul has broken out the first 11 verses or so of Galatians chapter 4. So all of Galatians needs to be kept in mind while we do this. The context of all of Galatians is built around a central question. How are we okay with God? How are we okay with God? Now I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to think about it in these terms, for example. We know God is 100% pure. There is no impurity in God. God is so pure, any impurity in his presence would be burned away. So question... How can God be 100% pure and bring you, or me, into himself? How can God have a 100 on the exam and take somebody like you, who's scoring most of you about a 75, or me, maybe about a 68, professional hazard, How does God do that and still be 100%? Let me ask it this way. How can God be 100% pure and be inside you? You're not 100% pure. Now this you may say, that seems like a weirdo question. Oh, this question plagued the church for a long time. And was responsible for a great deal of heresy even in the church. The Nestorian heresy, if you're a church historian, arose out of this question. Because the question is this. How could God be 100% pure, i.e. Jesus, and be inside Mary? Getting Mary's blood in his blood. If the blood of Jesus is 100% pure, how can he be sinless and have coursing in his veins sinful blood? How can he receive his nourishment in triutero from a sinful mother? And so the church de- debated this for centuries. The Nestorians said, well, Jesus, in a sense, wasn't God while he was in the womb. Wasn't until he came out. But Nestorius was labeled a heretic and banished from the kingdom. The ultimate position of many within the Roman, what becomes the Roman church, but at the time it's just the church is that Mary, at that point in time, must not yet have sinned. And that's what's known as the Immaculate Conception. Immaculate Conception does not mean it was a virgin birth. Immaculate Conception means she was immaculate. She was without sin. She was 100% pure. How else could she carry the divine Christ child within her? So this was a perplexing problem, and they weren't sure how this worked. They couldn't figure it out. Put the three questions up there. How can God be 100% pure and bring you into himself? How can God be 100% pure and be in you? How can he get you into him? How can he be in you? Or for uh, for that point, how could he be in Mary? In the sense of the incarnation the answer is not in my mind that Mary was perfect she wasn't the answer is not in my mind that God gets diluted he doesn't there's only one answer that I can find and that answer is only by 100% elimination of the impurity The only way God can bring you into himself and his presence is to 100% eliminate your impurity. The only way that God can be in you, in me, is to eliminate our impurity. The only way Christ's child could be inside Mary is the God outside of time has already eliminated her impurity. So now the question becomes, how can a God who is 100% just, because that's part of his purity. How can a God who is 100% just forgive you and me so that we're pure? How does a God forgive you? How does a God forgive me? How does a God forgive Mary? Heavens go all the way back. How does a God forgive Abraham? And the answer to that is only by that God paying the full penalty price of sin on our behalf. That price must be paid. God does not simply have a celestial eraser (laughs) where he can erase our sin. God does not simply say, well, I'm in a pretty good mood this century. I'm going to let it slide. That's not a just God. That's not an unchanging God. That's a fickle and arbitrary God. So for God to forgive you or me or Mary or Abraham... That can only be done by paying the full penalty of sin on our behalf. So the payment will count, God says, for everyone who relies on it. Everyone who trusts in it. Everyone who has faith in it. That's the full biblical concept. Pastuo, the Greek verb that's translated believe. In a noun form, pistis is translated faith or trust. All of these ideas are wrapped up in it. Reliance, trust, belief. And that's the biblical plan. Now this is what Paul taught the Galatians. But after Paul left... The Galatian heresy arose when some others came in and said something along the lines of, well, that may be a fine start, but then you need to merit God's mercy by keeping the law. You need to merit God's mercy by keeping the law. You can start with faith and forgiveness, but boy, you want to keep it, you better do right, be right. Now, Paul says, no, 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 no. And anybody who's teaching that should be accursed. Paul says the gospel is very simple the gospel is 100% forgiveness of your sins. That's what it is because the price was paid. Jesus didn't just pay the price for some of your sins. He paid the price for all of your sins. Jesus's act, Paul says in Romans, was not limited to that point in time. It extended before him and it extended after him so that those of faith before him, even Abraham, could have their faith counted to him as righteousness, right standing, AOK. Dikaiosune. It's it's a uh, uh, not guilty as well as those afterwards. So then the question arose from Paul's heretical opponents, if we can call them that. Well, if that's the case, then what's the whole point of the law? Is this Paul now doing a little flim-flam? The law is useless. law was plan A, Jesus is plan B. Paul says, absolutely not. And this was what we did two weeks ago when we used other analogies of Paul. I called them paintings. And we talked about how Paul said, Sunkleo. The law was Sunkleo. The law was something that caught you by hemming you in, it was the great corralling of you under sin the law corralled everyone under sin so that the promise of not guilty would be out of the faith box is the way I taught it faith not out of living under law you get corralled under law you know you're not gonna live you know you're not hundred percent perfect you know enough to cry out for the mercies of God because you don't have what it takes then the second painting that Paul used was Pythagoras. A Pythagoras, as we talked about, uh, used a painting of a picture of one uh, following. Uh, <laughs> that's a sour one. Not all of them looked sour. Um, but a Pythagoras was a slave who took the boys to school, nursed them when they were sick, taught them their manners, helped them with their homework. Typically, had a reputation for being rather grumpy. And Paul says, that's what the law was. The law had a role, but it was a slave. And it would take you to school and help you know how to live so that you were healthy. And teach you how to behave with good manners. And when you needed help with your homework, it would help you. But at times, the law did seem rather grumpy. Though it's not clear Paul was using that part of the text. Because some Pythagagoses were known to be very loving. Like an uncle, almost. And then Paul used the word in duo, which is to put clothing on someone. And Paul said, you know, when you put on Christ, using the the idea of putting on like your clothing, your toga or whatever. When you were baptized into Christ, you put him on, you wear Christ. You're a Christ follower. God sees you, he sees Christ. The world sees you, they should see Christ. And Paul says, and as a result, there are no second-class citizens in heaven. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, no second-class citizens in heaven. We have enough of that here. And so within the framework of that, we're rolling now into chapter 4. And I want to pick up with one more verse before we roll into it fully. But we're going to start with the analogies. And I need to make this make sense. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male. There's no female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to the promise. Now. Within the flow of that, here's chapter 4. I mean that the air, and this starts out in the Greek, it's lego day. You, you could translate that also as, as uh, something along the lines of, uh, let me put it to you this way. okay? Let me, let, me, let me say it like this. Lego is I say, day just means it's a disjunctive. Just, let, let me put it this way. The heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now Paul's using a metaphor here, and it's harder for us to grasp Because we're reading an English translation of a Greek passage that was written within the confines of Roman law, which are very foreign to our mentality. So we lose track of this allegory, and if you're not real careful, you'll read that, and it'll seem a little fuzzy. So let's look at it. Hello, Ben. Let's look at it again. I mean that the air... Kleronomos in the Greek. That's um, um that's someone who stands to inherit. But the person who stands to inherit isn't any really different than a slave, even though he owns everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Here's the scenario. Uh, I write a will. I say in the will, who do I want to let inherit? Um, Hank, I'm going with you on this one, okay? All right. Hank is older than I am. Doesn't matter, Roman law. Doesn't matter how old he is. I can adopt him. Not only can I adopt Hank, but I can adopt him after I'm dead. So we're not related yet, but I can put into my will. I've got Sharon Hempel here. She knows how to do wills. I'll have Sharon put into my will. Upon my death, Hank is my adopted son. You say, well, that seems kind of strange. Julius Caesar put it into his will that Octavius would be his adopted son. Octavius becomes Caesar Augustus as the adopted son of Caesar. Gets all of his money, conquers in the Civil War, and is Caesar Augustus when Christ is born. This was the way of it. Now, here's the thing. Let's say instead of adopting Hank, I adopt how old are you, young lady? 18, that doesn't count. How old are you? 17, and what's your name? Katie. I'm Katie. Katie Lynn? Yeah. I love that name. I'm adopting Katie Lynn when I die. She's 17. I'm sorry, you're 17. You don't get the property. You technically own it, but I've got to put it under a manager. Until you get to be of age. And I get to decide when that is. So I'm gonna set it up. Now, Katie Lynn, you brought your Bible, you're making notes. I think you're responsible. But I want to tell you something. A lot of kids go off to college and they get dazzled by the bright lights. And they get, well, I don't have to go to church today. And then well, I don't have to go to church anytime. And then what happens is they start learning all of these new things, but they're not growing up with the Lord at the same time. And so they reach a point in their life where they think, I've learned so much, and where faith seems to be an antiquated concept of their youth. Something that was sweet when they were growing up that their parents kind of indoctrinated them in by bringing them to church where that goofy lawyer would teach and call him out, Katie Lynn. And so they, they get distracted and they get caught up in the world. And I don't want you coming into this property like that. So I'm going to have the managers take care of this property until you're, hmm. Well, I don't know how old yet. You seem to be a kind person just from looking at you. The boys will be chasing you if they're not already. I don't want some loser head to get a hold of you just because of what you've got. So we've got to put this out maybe till you're, I don't know, 35 years old. Now technically, I've died. You've been my adopted daughter. You own this stuff. But man, you're not living any different than a slave as far as this stuff's concerned. Because while you own it, it's all under the care of guardians and managers until the date i set does that make sense so paul says the heir as long as he's a child nothing personal on that katie lynn is no different from a slave a doulos in the 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 greek doulo here is the word slave don't don't get it messed up with this horrendous American history and world history of slavery. Um, um, servant is better. Um, he's even though no different than a servant. Even though he's the owner of everything, but he's under guardians, epitropos, and managers, oikonomos. We get economics from it. Economists. Law of the House. He's under guardians. Epitropus is what the Roman concept was of a trustee. The bottom line is, Paul is saying to us, You were trust fund babies. You wanted to be, you wanted, oh, baby, I'm a trust fund baby. Yes. You were trust fund babies and the law was taking care of you before you came into your inheritance. That's what he's teaching here. So you're under the care of guardians and managers until the date set by the father. The father gets to decide. Now in the same way, Paul continues, when we were children... When we were children... Oh, there. In the same way, we also when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now here's a really cool metaphor. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Stoichia is the form of the word used here that's translated elementary principles. Now I want to tell you about stoichia because it's a great word. Stoichion is the, the root of the word. And it meant literally things that were placed side by side in a row. I say literally. It, it, that's not the right way to say it. Let me speak more precisely. The origination of the concept. The origination of the concept of stoichion is things set right in a row. Side by side. And so it quickly became an expression for the ABCs. Because those are set right next to each other. Well, they didn't have C. The ABGs. Alpha, beta, gammas. What we would call the ABCs. So you had the ABCs. And because ABCs are used to make what? Words. And words are used to make what? Sentences. And so the Stoichia become, um, the, the stoichion become uh, the, the, the fundamental building blocks. Not just of the ABCs that become the words that become the sentences, but they become the fundamental building blocks of, of the world. Some would refer to the four elements of earth. Air, fire, land, water. Those four elements are the four Stochion. just the fundamental building blocks of things. So Paul says, you were enslaved to the fundamental, we were enslaved, he's talking to the Jews here. We were enslaved to the fundamental building blocks, the ABCs of the world. Because we were enslaved to the law. It was taking care of us. It's the best we had. It was nurturing us. So we're enslaved to the stoichion, to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come. Fullness of time. This is beautiful. Pleroma to Cronu. Pleroma is fullness. The fullness of time. Now, I happen to have us a little show and tell. Hold on here. There we go. I could have had a V8. I did a low-sodium V8, which means it tastes a little bit like metal. All right. Ooh. One can of V8 doth not a Pleroma make. Playroma needs a second can. No, that's not Play Roma either. It's getting closer. That's not Play Roma. Play Roma. That keeps the play-roma from becoming all over the table. Play-roma. Oh, that's not really very good. Note to self, next time play-roma needs to be done with Diet Dr. Pepper. I thought the red would really be nice. When we're done, there are four cans of V8 juice if anybody wants them. It's low sodium. They'll be down at the front. Pleroma is translated fullness of time and that's important and I do uh, an illustration instead of just putting up a few pictures because I cannot emphasize to you enough what this word means within the context of how Paul says it. What I want you to understand is that the cross of Christ is the world's turning point. It is the apex of all human history. It is purposed by God from before the creation of the world. It is prophesied by God. It is the reason Israel is God's chosen people. Because through them the Messiah will come. It is the reason God can reckon Abraham's faith as righteousness. It is the reason why God has mercy in this world. It is the reason God promises that through the offspring of Abraham, all nations can be blessed, will be blessed. The cross is history's nodal point. You're saying nodal point? That sounds like a noodle word. No, not noodle point. Nodal point. If you garden, the nodes are the places where the the leaves are about to come out. They're, 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 They're ready to explode. They're the nexus. That's the point where everything comes and gets its meaning. History's nodal point. Everything in history, including what lies ahead, finds its meaning here. This is eschatological language, if you want to get expensive with big-dollar theological words. In other words, this, this is why we can say we're living in the last days. And we've been able to say that for almost 2,000 years. Because the cross of Christ is what ushers in the the The, 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 the kingdom. I mean, at this point, it's just playing out. Satan's been defeated. Our sins have been forgiven. We have eternal life with God. we are just got to get rid of the, the, the death clothes and put on the new eternal clothes. Now, I want to put this into context with all that Paul has said thus far, so we lose the Greek here. But look what he says. I mean that the air. As long as he's a child is no different from a slave... ...though he's the owner of everything, trust fund baby... ...but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children... ...were enslaved to the ABCs, the building blocks of the world. But when the pleroma, the fullness of time had come... ...God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that is our first set of analogies. Now let's talk theology for just a couple of minutes because I can't let this passage go by without talking theology. Here's the bad part for you guys. I can spend about two or three weeks on each one of these verses. We're not going to do that. But each one of these verses is just, our daughter, we got to see our daughter this week. She's pregnant with twin girls. We're so excited. She's like six months pregnant, I think, at this point. Six, uh, she's in her last trimester. She looks like she should have given birth about two years ago. I mean, it's, it's, these little twin girls are, are really um, enjoying themselves. But the problem is, a passage like this is pregnant with more than twins. It's got these wonderful picture images and this wonderful teaching. But there's some theology embedded here that we don't want to miss. Look at it for the theology now. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Exophisteline is staline, Stalin is sent forth. God sent forth His Son. I want you to hang on to that word. God sent forth His Son. Jesus pre-existed His conception. Jesus is a pre-existent God. He's a son of God, not in an adopted sense, in a true sense of one. They share DNA. He is, um, you know, if a dog has a son or offspring, it's a dog. If a cat has offspring, it's a cat. If a chicken has offspring, it's a chicken. If God has offspring... God. Inherent in this is a concept of deity. Not deity that was created because the deity was already there. God didn't create his son. Paul does not use the word for create. He uses the word for sent out. Apostellan, apostello is if you take off the first two letters, apostello is the word for apostle in a noun form. It's someone who's sent. Jesus was sent. The E-X at the beginning is just out. He's sent out. And there's, there's something really significant about this. He's not only sent out, but he's born of a woman. Not born of men and women. Not a child of Joseph. Just of the mother. I think we've got very clearly here an understanding. That Paul's referencing this as a virgin birth. Now it's typical to speak of someone being born of their mother. But it's also very typical in Jewish history to speak of someone. And they draw their name even by being born of their father. Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar is the Aramaic word for son of. The idea of who you're the son of was an important concept. But here Paul says he's son of God, but he's born of a woman. And that's the genomenon ek gunaikos, born out of a woman. He's sent out of God, or God sent him out, the son, his son, and he's then born out of a woman, which makes him born, again the same word, under the law, because that's where Mary resided, under the law. And God did this in a way that is echoed in Philippians 2, where, God, where Paul says that Jesus was born, and again he uses the same genomenos word, genomeno, uh, he says he was born in the likeness of humans. He was born to be obedient to death. That's what being born under the law is. This is a very high, sophisticated, developed view of Christ. In a letter that's written somewhere between 47 and 53 A.D. Where Paul's writing after his revelation from Jesus. Not from learning it from others. And if we don't grab that theology and see it. Then we're really missing out. He continues and he says. That Christ was born under the law to redeem those. Who were under the law. And here the word redeem. Ex agarace, is is to buy out. To buy back. So, so it's, it's buying out. To, to purchase. Okay. To redeem those who were under the law. So he's born under the law. To buy us out who are under the law. So that we might receive adoption. As sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, here's, here's this we, we lose this. I'm sorry, I keep coming back to this. You remember, I'm a Greek nerd. Just excuse me for it. But this is really cool. Look, God sent Jesus. Ex apestilen and then because we're now sons God sent exact same word see look at your Greek words exact same exact same words God sent so the God who sent his son out has now sent his spirit the spirit of Christ out into our hearts God's at work God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, just as surely as God sent His Son. And He sent all of this out, and He sent His Spirit of His Son, and that's why our hearts are crying out, "Abba, Father," because we are His adopted sons. So, how can one hundred percent God be one hundred percent pure and bring you into Himself? Bring you into him, and how can he be 100% pure and be in you the spirit of his son he sent to be in you, or Mary, or Abraham, or anyone else? Only by 100% elimination of the impurity, which is what Christ did on the cross. And that is why not because we're good enough, not because we follow the law, not because we're holy. By the law, by what we do, by who we are, by our merits, by our deeds. But only because Christ paid the price for our sins. My Greek professor, one of my Greek professors used uh, this analogy. I've used it before, I'm sure, because it's one that's stuck with me for 50 years, 40 years, 42 years, 43, however many years it's been. It's an analogy. Bella dies. Goes to heaven. There's a line outside the pearly gates. No social distancing up there though. You get pretty close. And uh, he overhears Peter telling the fella, hey, takes a thousand points to get in here. And uh, the fella kind of feels pretty good about that because he'd been a pretty good guy. Buttons his coat, stoked, going through his memory. Gets up, he's next up. Peter says, takes a thousand points to get in here. What do you have to say? fellow says, where shall I begin? I went to church well over a thousand times in a year, if you count my big years, when we used to have Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Not only that, I, and he listed out 20,000 things he did through church and with church. It was incredible. Peter his jaw was open. Peter said, "We have not had anybody like you in like a long time." That's amazing. Kudos. Well done. I'm going to give you a point for that. The guy said a point and he thought, oh, yeah, I was just doing church. That's expected. I need to do the other stuff. Okay, um, uh, I was honest in business. I didn't cheat on my taxes. I, uh, you know, and he listed just, I was, I was a good neighbor. Uh, sometimes I'd even mow my neighbor's yard. And, and, and some da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and listed another 25,000 things just to be safe. Peter said, truly stunning absolutely stunning. I'm giving you another point. I thought family. I left out family. I was faithful to my wife. I brought my kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I, and he listed another ten, twenty thousand 20,000 things. Peter said, look, buddy, you are the best I've seen in so long. That's another point. And the guy said, you mean I've just listed all these things my entire life, every good thing I've ever done, and you're giving me three points? Peter said, yeah, He says, and it takes a 1,000 to get in here? Peter says, yeah. He says, well, how but by the grace of God does anybody get in? Peter says, and that's your 1,000 points. (laughs) If we don't have God forgiving us for our sins in a just manner, we don't have the Spirit in us crying out as a son. We might have God calling to us, nagging us to come into a relationship. It might be, behold, I stand at the door and knock. But that confirmation that we are the heir, that we are no longer a slave, but we're a son and an heir through God. By the way, go back to this for a moment. Jesus... God sent forth his son born, under the, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as son. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit. All of those verb tenses are referencing what we read earlier that you don't get your trust fund until the day God appointed. But when the pleroma, when the fullness of time came, God appointed it. And that's what he did. And that's why we live in the fullness of time. All right, so that gets us through that. Whoops, I just zipped back through. We've got a little bit of time. I won't keep you more than a couple more minutes, but I want to deal with one more set of analogies. Paul closes this little paragraph section out with a before and after shot. And here's his before and after. Formerly, when you did not know God, You were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. Now, look here, because Paul's done a shift. Paul's been saying, we, we, we. And now he says, you, you, you. Because now he's talking to the Gentiles and not the Jews in the congregation. Formerly, you Gentiles, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. You're worshiping them. But to people who understand, they're nothing. I'm not saying that the demons can't use that worship and those opportunities to to influence you. But there's no reality to these statues made by humans. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Inherently, they're not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, that's a rhetorical, really cool rhetorical thing. Paul does it quite frequently where he says something and then he modifies it in a way to provide emphasis. It's not like he made a mistake and it's like, oh, don't have an eraser on this pen. Let me just change that. Rather, I meant to say... No, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's an expression, okay? Um, it's, if, it's epideorthosis, if you want to know the rhetorical word for it. You can write that down and that'll really get you a dessert-free at lunch. Uh, I'd like an epideorthosis uh, dessert-free lunch. Okay, you were enslaved to those who by nature were not gods, but now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, Because those are one and the same. As we know him, we're known by him. As we're in him, he's in us. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles? Oh, the ABCs. Stoikia. The ABCs. Wait a minute. I thought the ABCs were the law when you were talking to the Jews earlier in this chapter. It was. But now he's using it for the paganism of the Greek converts. Why would you want to turn back to something so paganly ABC? You want to be slaves again? Now, I want you to see this massive slap in the face. And I'll tell you who he's slapping. He's slapping the Jews who, not, not, not the, the, don't think this is anti-Semitism. No, 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 Paul's a Jew. There are Jews who were right, but there were Jews who were telling the Greeks that they had to become Jews. That they had to live under the law. And Paul's saying that that's ABCs of the law for the Jews is basically the same as the Gentiles' ABC laws of paganism. The Gentiles don't need to become Jews under the Jewish law. The Jews need to get out from under the Jewish law and live in the grace of Christ. That's not license to sin. But it's not self-justification. And that's what Paul's driving at with that stoichia, the elementary principles. And he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And I worry that I've just spent all this time with you for nothing. Now, he doesn't mean that in the sense of Paul's really concerned that it was a wasted time. He's he's just underscoring. Do you understand how I feel? I feel that way. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Look, Paul's, the Jewish calendar was very important. We had Passover just recently. Yesterday? It was yesterday. Um, we have Passover. There are all sorts of Jewish holidays that observe days, and some of them months, and some of them seasons, and some of them years. By the way, this is one reason some scholars think this letter was written as early as 47, 48 A.D., which was a year of jubilee of sorts, where the, the, if the Gentiles were told, now that you're Christians, this is a Jewish faith, and you need to start following the law, it would have included honoring the year of jubilee. So the idea is that Paul must have written it pretty soon thereafter because he was so upset about all of that. We are not, and and Paul says to the Romans in his nice letter where he addresses all of this, Paul says, you know, some want to observe days and some don't. Just don't think that you're justifying yourself by it. Do what you want to do. You want to honor these Jewish holidays and, and celebrate them and be festive with them. That's fantastic. But don't do it because you have to to satisfy God. It is not self justification. If you're observing this because you think this makes you merited God's favor, then shame on you. I fear I've wasted my efforts. That's where Paul says it. So, those are those 11 verses. Here's your points to ponder, and we'll go to church. Number one this is Palm Sunday, Holy Week. What's that stuff about don't celebrate days? Don't think by going to church on Easter Sunday, you've checked the box and God loves you for a year. Or at least till Christmas. Don't think that that you're obligated to watch the Good Friday service that this church has worked so hard to put together and so many people have put their efforts into. You don't have to watch it to please God. But there is still value, absolute value, in taking advantage of all of these opportunities to better know and understand and experience God. It's not what makes me right before him, but it sure does make me better with him. I grow from this. He puts these things down for our own good. So one thing I'd like you to think about this week is John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying right before his arrest. And he prays what's called a high priestly prayer by many scholars. And he says in that prayer, John 17, 4 and 5, God, I glorified you on earth and I've accomplished the work you gave me to do. God sent him out to do something. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Ponder that this week. Think about that. I also want you to think about this week how he prayed that they, which is us, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in Christ, and Christ is in the Father, So they may also be in us, so the world might believe that God sent him. As we inhabit the presence of God and let him inhabit the presence that we have, we show this world an eternal truth, the nodal point of history. And final, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me May be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, and that's the beauty of this. So I want to bless you in the name of Jesus for this week, and then let's go to church. Jared's got an incredible sermon if you've not already heard it, an incredible sermon to preach today. Uh, he and I got to visit a little bit, and and I said, "What are you preaching on?" And he told me, and I'm pretty stoked. I want to get down there and get a good seat. So let me bless you in the name of Jesus, Father. Uh, I do pray your blessings upon us. I pray that we will hear your voice. That any who have not trusted you, trusted in your sacrifice for their purity, will do so. We'll just pray to you right now. Father, I want to be pure before you and I got to trust you for that. Trust the work of Christ. And then, Father, as we do that and we hear your spirit within us cry out to you as our Father, may we live responsive to that spirit cry as we seek to please you, to grow in you, to become like you, to show you to the world for the glorious, magnificent God you are through Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our peace, our everything, we pray. Amen.